0: Well, I want to share, and I'm probably going to share next week also, a little bit down the same line that I started last week. So if you weren't here last week and you're wondering what is he talking about, you can go online to our website, but I'm talking about capturing a moment and how many moments we have in our life to make a choice and how the choice that we make in that moment can change our life and the life of other people dramatically, forever. I wanted to put the title of the book up. I've been mentioning it, and a few of you have asked me about the book that I read on vacation. Just so if you want to get it, and you can see where I'm stealing some of his thoughts and some of his material, um, it's slide one. It's up now? All I saw was a lion. Okay. McManus wrote this book. It's called Chasing Daylight. And uh, it, it's really, you know, anytime you read any book, you got to remember first of all, it's not scripture. So, when you read it, use some wisdom, but I I think what I've been reading, and it's really encouraged me, and it's also challenged me in so many ways, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, to be more aware and conscious of the moments that we have, those things that come across our paths, where we have a moment to make a choice, and man, we've got a million choices a day, it seems, and we'll be talking a little bit about that. The title of my message is, A Secret to Seizing Divine Moments. Do something. Now, I'm going to be speaking somewhere, something next week along these lines that will maybe rein it in a little bit, but for now I just want to say, do something. Don't be paralyzed. Don't just sit. We need to do something. You're not going to seize divine moments by not doing anything. And sometimes you're going to do the wrong thing. And we'll talk about that too in just a little while. But don't let the fear of doing the wrong thing paralyze you either. And I'll explain why you can take that risk and take that step of doing the wrong thing. You know, back in about, I don't remember these things real well, somewhere around 2003, 2004, we felt the Lord prompting us to buy some property for a church building. And as the elders, we thought, well, where do we want it? There's no room downtown. So we started looking on the outskirts of town." And some of you may not realize this, but this isn't the property we bought. We bought property on the west side of town, right off of Highway 14. If you go west, you'll see Ballaton Construction has a big building out there. That's what we bought. Because we knew and felt and believed that God was leading us to get a different building. And we knew we needed new property. So we decided to buy that lot. Well... There were some problems with that lot. One of them was there was an easement right through the center of the lot that would limit what we could build and what we could do that we didn't know was there when we bought the lot. Um, There was no way we were going to be able to expand because of that. A farmer owned some farmland just west of it, and he wasn't going to let go of his farmland for our church. And in the midst of this, (coughs) Bob, Nordean, wherever he's sitting, he's over there, we were praying, and, and somewhere in this time frame, he had this vision in his dream. And spiritual as I am, and as astute as I am, I thought he was nuts. <laughs> but he had this vision. And it was the property we were supposed to own for the church. And it had a weird shape. It was shaped like the state of Minnesota. See why I thought he was nuts? Well... This development started out here, and God blessed us. They sell individual lots for about $30,000. We bought six acres for $20,000. Seems seemed like God was in it. Put up that next slide, slide three. See if you recognize anything when you see our lot. It's kind of sideways, but if you would turn that whole slide up, you see what I'm talking about? The state of Minnesota? How weird is that? You know, we, we, we knew we heard God's voice. We knew we needed to get property. So we went ahead and bought the property. Maybe we got ahead of ourselves. Maybe we missed something. I don't know. But God spoke to us. And because our hearts were right and we were trying to do what we knew that the Lord wanted us to do, not going to be stopped by the things that we didn't know we were supposed to do, we bought this property. And the Lord then confirms it. And another little tidbit uh, you can kind of see a square up in the middle to your right of the VCC letters. That square is a city well. And part of the prophecy over the property we were going to be buying was there's going to be spiritual wells and wells in the natural on this property. And there it is. Amazing thing. We learn something there. Do something, even if it's wrong. And as long as our heart's right and we're doing what we know to do, God can honor it and He will honor it. He will take us to that place He wants us to be when He wants us to be there in our lives when we're seeking Him. So do something. Think about when Jesus called His disciples. What did He say to His disciples? Follow me. Now that's a tough command to follow if you don't do something. They had a choice, every one of them, to follow Him. Or make a hundred excuses why it wasn't the appropriate time to follow him. You know, could where are we going? What are we going to do? What's it going to look like? How long are we going to be gone for? Good thing they didn't know the answer to all those questions. They'd have probably not went. But they recognized that this Jesus was special. And they reacted and acted upon something that stirred in them. They didn't let the fear of what could be or the unknown stop them and paralyze them. They chose to do something, to follow Him. We all have those moments with those choices like I talked about last week. And something about a moment we need to understand, they're priceless. You know, you watch that commercial, priceless. Some of these moments in our lives are priceless. They're not repeatable. They're unique. Once it's gone, it's gone that same moment will never, ever appear again. We can't do anything, as I said last week about the past, but we are traveling in time into the future. So they're priceless and unique. You know, the people that, that we sometimes hear about or read about or we see specials done on television about them, sometimes in the Christian world, sometimes in the secular world, these people that we look at and say, they're world changers. Wow, wouldn't it be amazing to be like them? They do things, they make choices that are so significant, it affects the lives of people all over the world sometimes. They are living life to the fullest in many different areas. But you know what? They all have at least one thing in common. Know what that is? They did something. They chose to do something. And if you talk to a lot of these people, you know what? They're just normal people, just like you, just like me. But they chose to do something, to step out in faith, not knowing what was out there, and did something. And in the Christian faith, we could look at some of the people of the faith who have done amazing things for the kingdom of God. And if you talk to most of them, they're just normal people. How did it all happen? They don't know. God just did something miraculous in their lives. Today we're going to look at a story that... Uh, the guy, in the, this Irwin McManus, used this story, and I love some of his insights into the story. It's about a man named Jonathan. Now, if you recall, when we were going through the story the last number of months, we talked a little bit about a guy named King Saul. And King Saul was the first king when, when the people cried out to God for a king. What they really did is they rejected him and said, we want to be like everybody else and have a king, instead of letting you be our king. So he gave him King Saul. And I'm going to read to you first from First Samuel 7. Samuel was a prophet, and God used him to speak into Saul's life. And here's what he says first. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, he's speaking to the nation of Israel, and he says, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. At this time in their history, the Philistines were tormenting the Hebrew people. If you remember the Philistines, you might remember at least one of them. His name was Goliath. And the Philistines were a warring people. And they were technologically advanced compared to Israel, also in the form of weaponry and metallurgy. And the Hebrews were getting whipped by these people. And God says through the prophet. If you do these things, if you get back to me and you tear down all your idols, I'll deal with the Philistines for you. And that verse ends in verse 4. It says, So the Israelites put away all their Baals and all their Torahs, all of their idols, and serve the Lord only. God's faithful to his word. He said, If you do this, I'll deal with the Philistines. It's a done deal. In 1 Samuel 9, verses 15 and 16, Samuel is going to speak again. And it's talking about this man named Saul is coming. And God speaks to Samuel and says, Now the day before Samuel came, the Lord revealed this to Samuel. The Lord said these words, About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. I want you to anoint him leader over my people. He will deliver the people from the hand of the Philistines. I share those two scriptures for you you to to set the scene. Saul and the people should know that God has said, don't worry about the Philistines. They're my problem. I'm going to take care of them. And I'm going to bring this man named Saul. He's going to become king, and I'm going to use him, and we're going to get rid of the Philistines. You don't need to deal with them anymore. That's common knowledge to Saul and to many of the people of Israel because Samuel spoke to the nation. So there's going to be a battle. And there's going to be a war. And in those days, they might set a whole bunch of people over here on this hill and the valley in between, a whole bunch of people over here. And that's kind of the scenario. And Saul is sitting with the Hebrew people, getting ready to attack the Philistines. But he had given, been given this order by God through Samuel. He says, I want you to go, but I want you to wait. Seven days from now, I'm going to come and I'm going to tell you what to do. And we're going to deal with those Philistines once and for all. So Samuel waits. And he waits. And the days pass. The only problem was the Philistines weren't just sitting and waiting either. And if you read the story, and you'll find most of this in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and 14, you might need to read a little bit more than that to get the full context. But basically, here's what it says. And you can imagine Saul and the Hebrew people sitting up on these hilltops and they're watching. It says 30,000 Philistine chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people more numerous than the sands of the sea. Scary sight. The people start to get afraid. The Hebrew people start to hide. It says they go find caves and they crawl in the caves and the crevices between the rocks and they find a thicket and they're hiding in there. And all of a sudden, Saul looks around and basically what he sees is he's got 600 people left. And the Philistines are starting to move around and they're sending divisions here and there. Fear is starting to set into Saul. Day six passes, day seven comes. And finally, fear and impatience take over, and Saul decides he's just going to do something. So he decides he himself is going to act as the priest, which he was not supposed to do. And he decides we're going to do this, and he builds an altar, does the sacrifice thing, all the things he shouldn't have done, and Samuel shows up right after he does all this, and it's basically paraphrasing, what were you thinking? What did you do? Because you've done this, because you've disobeyed, there are going to be really harsh consequences. Matter of fact, you're not going to be king forever. Things aren't going to work out well for you. And he sits there. Saul sits there. And the Bible even says there he sits under the shade of a pomegranate tree doing nothing, getting more afraid. He looked at the circumstances, fear paralyzed him, and he did nothing. Yet he was the king. He had the political authority. He had a priest. They tell us there's a priest there with him now. He has a priest, so he's got some religious authority. He's got the men. He's got the military authority. There's only 600 of them, but he's the king. He's in charge. He does nothing. Saul acted out of fear instead of doing what he knew was the right thing to do. Instead of making a choice and acting upon what he knew from God, he let the things that he didn't know, the uncertainties, stop him from doing anything. You know, when we have many choices to make, the right choice is the one that God has shown to you. When we have freedom to make choices, we need to do something and take the initiative. When there are boundaries, we need to honor those boundaries. Saul had an opportunity to make a choice to take the initiative, but he didn't do it. It's amazing. He went from being so impatient and he was urgent to do something to doing nothing. So now we're going to look at Jonathan. Jonathan was his son. He was the king's son. Well, guess what that means. He's he's really in line to be the next heir, right? He should be the next king. He's passed over for a guy named David. But it's interesting, the character of Jonathan comes through. He didn't let the circumstances of that happening to him prevent him from honoring God and making choices and walking out his destiny in God. He had a faith in God, a trust in God, and opinion of God that enabled him to do things in the face of uncertainty. Jonathan took some initiative. I want to read a verse in 1 Samuel 14, starting at verse 8. And he is speaking to his armor-bearer. Now remember, he's just one of the group of 600 with Saul. He's got his poor armor-bearer there. I decided in this story, I don't think I wanted to be the armor-bearer. He says to his armor-bearer, he says this, Come then, we will cross over towards the men, the enemy, the Philistines, and then we'll let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Let's go over there and let them see us, and let's just go pick a fight. That's kind of what he's saying to his armor bearer. And his armor bearer says, whatever you want. Let's do it. I'm with you. He's taking some initiative. He goes over there. He knew that God had said he would deal with the Philistines. He knew that Saul was supposed to deal with the Philistines. He didn't go to Saul to get approval. He just knew what he was supposed to do. Without much regard for his own well-being, by the way. He goes over there. And they reveal themselves to the enemy. And the enemy tells them, come up to us. And he knows that's the sign. And the story's amazing. And I wish there'd be more details to these stories, but basically it says this. Jonathan went up there. I got to tell you something to make this even more impressive. When the Philistines went to war and conquered people, one of the things they did was they basically made it impossible for them to arm themselves again. The Bible tells you in the midst of this story there were no swords and no spears in the whole army of the Hebrews except two. Saul had a sword and Jonathan had a sword. Why? Because all of the Phil- when the Philistines came, they either killed those that could do the metal work, or they took them prisoner and they worked for the Philistines. It's getting a little easier to understand Saul's hesitancy, isn't it? The circumstances looked pretty bleak. But Jonathan had a sword. And he went over there and revealed himself to the enemy. They said, come on up. He went up and it says, that day he killed 20 of them with his sword. Now when I read that, it's like, wow, he killed 20 of them. And it tells you he did this in a certain geographic area, less than an acre. Man, it sounds to me like it was a battle. I mean, I'm I'm thinking it was probably one of those battles where he was exhausted. He probably got pounded on a little bit himself, but he conquered. And God stepped in. Not only did the people start to fear in the Philistine camps, they started to fear, they started to tremble, an earthquake started. God jumped into the battle just like he promised he would. And the next thing you know, the, the Philistines are turning on one another and with their swords and fighting each other. And they're running away. And finally the Hebrew people see this, come out of their caves and, and come. And there's a tremendous victory that day for the Hebrew people. Because Jonathan seized the moment, made a choice, and acted on what he knew God had promised. And he had no idea how it was going to turn out. One of the verses in there we'll look at in just a minute is this. We're going to go over there. We're going to face the enemy. Maybe God will help us. Maybe God will help us. Perhaps God will help us. He says God's not limited by how many of us there are, how few or how many. God's not limited. He knew who God was. And he acted on it. And that choice impacted their world. How could Jonathan know that God would move so mightily? Well, he didn't. But he, got, he knew God's will and he knew God's character. There was all kinds of uncertainty. He knew God had spoken about the Philistines and he trusted God to be faithful to what he said he would do. And that's one of the points I really want to drive home for us is acting on what we know. Don't sit and do nothing based on what you don't know. And i got to confess, I've been so guilty of that for so long in so many ways because I want to know everything. I want to know it's safe. I want to know it's going to work. I want to know it's going to be successful. I'd like to say because I want to know all those things for the glory of God. But the reason I want to know all those things is I'm scared and I don't want to fail and I don't want to be rejected and I don't want to be a loser. And most of you are like me. Whether you want to admit it or not. We get paralyzed by the things we don't know. Uncertainties stop us. There were three words that separated Jonathan from Saul and those three words separate Jonathan from many of us. And those three words were simply this. Come, let's go. And that's what he said to his armor-bearer. And his armor-bearer said, I'm with you all the way. Now, the Bible is full of people. And we could go through story after story of people who knew a little bit about God and what He was revealing. And they acted upon it, but they didn't have a clue what was coming. Remember Abraham? God spoke to Abraham and said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Leave your family, leave your land, leave everything. Come on, we're going. Had no idea where, how, or what. And if you know the story of Abraham, he was a little old. Hard to have offspring. We can go on through a number of them. Daniel, remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den? You know why he ended up there? Because there was a command from the king. It was set up. For Daniel, don't seek guidance from anybody but the king. Well, he knew what he was supposed to do. He knew he was supposed to pray to his God, so he did it. He did what he knew to do. Well, the consequences were he ended up in the lion's den. And when he got thrown in the lion's den, do you think he knew how it was going to turn out? Heck no. But he comes out and he says, My God, close the mouths of the lions. He had three buddies named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember their story? The fiery furnace one? They had a choice. No one was to bow down to anybody or anything but King Nebuchadnezzar. And these guys knew. This is what they knew. I will bow to no one but God. That's what they knew. And they made a choice and acted on it, and they would not bow to King Nebuchadnezzar. When they're caught, they're found out, they're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace for their choice. That would seem like a good definition of uncertainty. They heated it seven times normal. It was so hot the people that threw them in died. And when they were getting ready to throw them in, what'd they say? Our God is able. But even if he doesn't, do what you want, making a choice. In the face of uncertainty, Paul in the New Testament. You know, sometimes I think, boy, it'd been been nice to be like a guy like Paul, so you always knew what you were supposed to do next. How many of you wouldn't you love to always know what you're supposed to do next? Paul didn't. You know, there's a story in Acts chapter 16. I'm going to read it quickly. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Well, Paul, what would you go there for then? Well, I thought I was going to preach. He didn't know what he's supposed to do. When they came to the border of Mesia, they tried to enter into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow them to. It's like, Paul, what are you doing? Walking around blind? Don't you know where you're supposed to go? But the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let him, so they passed. And they went down to Troas. And during the night, Paul finally had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Concluding that God. Man, to me, that's kind of a reassuring picture. The only time Paul could hear God was when he fell asleep. Otherwise, he didn't seem to get it right. What a trip. We sometimes think we've got to know everything. How many of you want to know God's will? Amen. Well, you do know a lot of God's will. Do something about it. We're going to look at how you can know God's will even better. Paul didn't know where he was going, but he knew why. His compass was God's heart. That's a good compass. I don't have to know where I'm going. I don't have to know what I'm doing there necessarily at all. But as long as God's the one guiding it, my heart is right with God, we'll be in a good good situation. Paul's heart was guided by God. His passion was a God-given passion. He wanted to share the good news of the gospel to every human being that walked the earth. That's what he was about. When we take a hold of the divine moments in our life, God will make sure we get to the right place at the right time. But if you're like me, you want to know the whole path before you take the first step. We aren't going to know the whole path, there's going to be lots of uncertainty. Next week, I'm going to talk more about uncertainty, but I want to just throw this out there and think about this. It's in the area of uncertainty where God does miracles. You know, I have faith for certain things because I I believe God can do that. I've seen Him do it. I've heard Him do it. But then there's that faith that takes me to that whole other level of, wow, I've never seen that before. I've never heard that before. You know, what God can do through a person who's willing to act, is limitless. As long as what we're doing is acting upon things that are in His will. So, how do I know what I'm supposed to do? I stand up here and tell you to do something. Some of you are going to go out of here and do some stupid things. Don't do that. So how do I know what to do? Share a scripture with you and read this scripture and say, think to yourself, how is that scripture going to help me to know what to do. It's in Psalms. 37.4 Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now too often and I'm hoping I can say this the way I want. Too often we read that scripture if you've heard it before and you think all right. If I delight myself in the Lord, he will give me anything I want. It's not what it says. If I delight myself in the Lord, he will give me the desires of my heart. He will give me his desires. His desires will be my desires. There will be an infusion of his desires into my heart. If I delight myself in the Lord, I will receive the desires of His heart. Guess what? Those desires will become my passion. And my passion will drive me and they will be passions of the Father. And I can't mess that up. Can I trust my passions? Yes. If I'm delighting myself in the Lord and my passions are the desires He's given me. We run off half-cocked thinking he's going to give us whatever we want because I'm a Christian. Wrong. He's not. He's going to give you the desires that will be in your heart when you seek him and delight yourself in him. Then his desires become my desires. I mean, I, come, I am a kind of guy who sometimes reacts emotionally. Anybody else do that? And I've discovered my emotions get me in big trouble sometimes <laughs> with some of you and many other people. If my emotions, my passions are coming from the Father's heart, I'm sorry if they would offend somebody. But God's going to use them. So delighting ourselves in the Lord. The more you love God, the more you delight yourself in God, the more you're going to love people. Some of you are thinking, I like God, but I'm not so sure about people. The more you love God, the more you're going to love people. And the more you love people, the more you're going to want to minister to people. The more you're going to want to help people. The more deeply you're going to desire to make a difference in the lives of people. God loves people. So if my passions become his passions, he loves people, I'm going to love people. I'm going to want to make a difference in people's lives. Guess what? I've got to do something. There are so many gifts and so many talents in this room. It's astounding. And they're all different and they're unique. Some of our talents and gifts overlap. Some are so distinctly different from one another. I don't get you and you don't get me. But that doesn't matter. We can come together and do more. We can make a greater difference for the kingdom. We can make a greater difference in people's lives. Your passions will make you proactive. If you're passionate about something, guess what? You do it. And and you can't hardly ever get enough of it. The problem is sometimes our passions get us in trouble. And you passionately do the wrong thing. And there lies the problem. I don't want to do the wrong thing. I don't want to miss it. I want to do what's on God's heart. And I think we all would pretty much say the same thing. And that can paralyze us so that we do nothing. Here's where the freedom comes in this whole thing. When you're passionate about God, now listen carefully to this so I don't get all of us in trouble. When you are passionate about God, you can do whatever your passions tell you to do. Don't leave off the first part. When you are passionate about God, you can do whatever your passions tell you to do because they will line up with Him. Go back to the Psalms verse. When you delight yourself in the Lord, He will give you the desires... Of your heart, my passions and his passions will be the same thing. But if I am not delighting myself in the Lord, if I am lukewarm, there is so much pressure from our culture and the world and the enemy to drive our passions, we will find ourselves in a train wreck. And we will do great damage to ourselves and the kingdom. But if we delight ourselves, Jonathan was certain about some things while he was able and willing to act and operate in the realm of uncertainties. When I read those stories, you can just kind of forget the, the personal level. This is, a, this is just a young man. The Hebrew nation's in fear. He's going to go face this unbelievable enemy. It was uncertain. He had one of the whole two swords in the whole camp. But he acted, was willing to. I just love uh, <clears throat> this paraphrase that, of that, that verse in 1 Samuel 14, 6 that I shared with you earlier. Let's go pick a fight. Maybe God will help. That's basically what he was saying. But he knew God. He knew his character. Next week, we're going to look a little bit more at the uncertainty of bracing these divine moments and doing something. Most of the the, the divine moments in our life, most of the times we're called to do something, probably won't be a life and death situation like this was with Jonathan. But the reality is, those divine moments you and I have and the choices we're going to make can change our life forever and change the lives of other people forever. And in a lot of people's eyes, they don't have to be a big deal. You might be sitting here and thinking to yourself, what can I do? Anybody else, anybody ever ask themselves that, probably under their breath? God, what can I do for you? How can I make a difference in the kingdom? I haven't got the same gifts that they have or they have or they have. What can I do? I want to share with you a testimony. And try not to get emotionally involved. (laughs) But some of you maybe have been following some of it on Facebook this last couple days, but my daughter and the church that they live in up in Bloomington, they, they work in and live up in Bloomington, it's called Cedar Valley Church. Three years ago, uh, a couple came from another church. My son-in-law's on staff there. And a couple came to join their staff, and, and the wife shared something with my daughter about how they did a little outreach in their church, and it was pretty cool. So God took a young lady and put a passion in her heart for downtrodden women. Women that don't have anything. Women who are finding themselves in abused situations. Women coming out of um, the sex trade industry. Women coming out of all sorts of situations. Sometimes it's just they're single, they're divorced, and they don't have any money. What could they do? Well, she took her passion and they, she shared her passion and a group of 20 women embraced that passion and became a leadership team. And this is the third year. In this third year, they had over 650 guests come to their church. And they had 250 volunteers working to serve and honor these women and their children who came to their church. They had a hair salon set up in the church. They cut hair. They did pedicures and manicures. They did massages. They had a boutique set up clothing, accessories, purses, belts, jewelry, whatever. They fed them a meal. They had children's clothing for their children. They fed the kids all the ice cream and pizza they could eat. And they ministered to these ladies. School supplies for every kid. One family came to her after a service and said, My husband and I want to buy all the school supplies for all the kids Bag, book bags and everything that goes in them. And the stories start coming in already that night. One young lady who came, she's homeless. She's being rescued by the the organization called Breaking Free from the sex trade industry in America. She left Las Vegas to escape and came back to Minnesota and found out it's worse in the Twin Cities than it is in Las Vegas. My daughter walked up to her and said to her, God loves you and he has a plan for your life. And this lady just started weeping uncontrollably because she'd never heard those words before. Another woman been domestically abused, she's on the streets because the guy she's running from stalks her and she's afraid he's going to kill her and no matter where she goes he finds her and she can't get the cops to do anything about it. And she's sharing the story, she's homeless. And they said, "You know, there's this there's this resource that you can find a place to help find you a place." I've tried, there is no rooms, there's a waiting list. They got on the phone to this organization, called them, and said, Send her over, we have a bed. They prayed with this woman. God opened a door, wept uncontrollably again. Women from shelters started traveling in the morning because the bus routes don't conveniently get them to the, Eden, the Bloomington Church in Cedar Valley Church. It was supposed to start at 5 30 in the afternoon, and ladies were showing up at 3 30 in the afternoon. They'd been riding buses from Lionel Lakes, which is way in the northern suburbs, because they have nothing but they could get on a bus. One lady broke down and wept because she could get a new bra, because she couldn't afford one, because she had to give everything she had to put food on the table for her kids, and she finally was going to have a brassiere. And the stories go on and on and on. One lady who went to this thing knew Sherry Sternke connection. She used to be at the Marshall Christian school. She'd been in the mission field and came home to adopt a child and they found cancer. She's been receiving cancer treatments. And she told Sherry, she says, You aren't gonna believe what happened to me. I heard about a church who was going to bless women with no strings attached. And I went. First, they give you a ticket so you can go and get a pedicure or manicure or massage. And then prayed for me as they're ministering to me. I went over to the boutique where you could pick up five things, and by now they had plenty of extra, so it was unlimited. I got jeans and purse and belt and jewelry, and two women came and ministered to me, one of them a cancer survivor herself, and they prayed with me. And she went on and on like this. Wherever she turned, she got ministered to. Guess what? They're just people like us who chose to do something. What can you do? What can God put on your heart? What can you get passionate about? It doesn't have to be a a leadership idea because we haven't got that many. You all know that, right? God speaks to all of us. What does He want you to do? Do something. When this passion Got into my daughter's heart, it was contagious. Guess who got changed as much as anybody else? Those 250 volunteers who were giving pedicures to women who came out of shelters and had ridden the bus all day long to get there. Not the most desirable job I can imagine. The love of Jesus. There was no sermon. But they took every opportunity to pray with people they could. Turned out there were salvations. But the gospel was demonstrated because these people chose to do something. We need to do something. Continually do something. That may not be our thing. That may not be, you you might say that's the cities, that's the bigger church, all that stuff. It's all true, it is. But they're people. And they serve the same God you and I do. Was there risk? Oh, yeah, there was risk. Have they had some problems? Oh, yeah, they've had to call the cops. They've been there. They've had to drive people home because the bus, buses quit running to where they lived and where their shelter was. It wasn't convenient. They've put in hundreds, maybe thousands of hours. They start working on it in the next one next week for next year. But boy, were the people blessed. Were the volunteers blessed? Was God glorified? Absolutely. I want to play a video as we get ready to close. Go ahead, Mary. Play this video. One of the things I liked about that video was all the different people. Could have been you or me in those pictures. You know who have the greatest testimonies to share with people? The ones that do something. The ones that take a risk and do something. You know, people have been doing something in the remodeling project. We're going to have people doing teaching. We're going to have all these different areas. But there are so many things that each one of us can be doing. And that's what it means to be the hands and feet of Jesus. I I, I hope and pray that you take this really seriously. Do something with those divine moments. There are uncertainties, but if our passion are the passions that the Lord has deposited in us, we can't go wrong. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray that your command to be your hands and feet and to go about ministering to those less fortunate, those that are hurting, those that are in poverty, those that just need a hug. God, that we would be obedient and and see those opportunities and seize them. Lord, that we wouldn't be paralyzed by fear, that we would be so impassioned by what you put in our heart, that we'd be willing to risk looking foolish, reputation, all of that stuff. Lord, I pray that our efforts would would not just be to edify our own flesh, but to build the kingdom and bring glory and honor to you. So I pray, Lord, as we go our separate ways this week, that you would be revealing these opportunities to us and we'd see them, that our eyes would be open to those moments where we can make a choice that can make a difference. And Lord, I pray for some big vision. I pray for some Risky, risky situations that you would lead us into that we would have to walk by faith. God, and I pray now as we go, you watch over us and protect us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.